Christina, hello. Welcome to Mulaney. Thank you. Christina Olson is a Brisbane-based writer. She worked as a journalist for years, writing for The Australian, The Courier Mail and The Sunday Telegraph. We might talk about the Murdoch Press at some point. Um, <laughs> she's written both novels and memoirs, including her mother, including um, The China Garden and Boy Lost, the memoir about her mother and about Christina's missing brother, which won the... Um, 2014 New South Wales Premier's Literary Award for Nonfiction and was shortlisted for the Stella Prize. I'm going right here. Just this month, Simon and Schuster have chosen Christina's new novel, Shell, to launch the literary imprint of Scribner in Australia, which is a very exciting thing for Australia to have a new literary imprint. Uh, Christina has been to Mulaney several times. Yes. Some of you may remember her visiting Rosetta Books in the two th early 2000s to talk about her novel In One Skin and the book she co-wrote with Debbie Kilroy. Kilroy was here. I'd ask you all please to welcome Christina to Mulaney. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming out on a stormy night. It's great to see you all. Now, are you all right? I'm going to just adjust your headphone just there a little bit because it looks horribly uncomfortable. Is that is that all right there? That bit better? Fabulous. Is that better? No, it looks a bit better. Is that how it? Yeah. yeah. Great. Okay. If it's okay, uh, I'd like to begin by talking a little bit about where you grew up. You grew up in New Farm, I believe, in Brisbane. I did. I grew up in New Farm in <coughs> Brisbane, a different place uh, in the 1960s to the one that it is now. Very, very working class. Very industrial, actually. Uh, it had a very affluent part down near the river, but certainly the part I grew up in was, yes, very plain, very bitumen and wood. Uh, and your fa your, did your mother work? Your, what was your father's employment? What was, what was My father uh, had arrived from Sweden only a few years uh, into the 1950s. He was an electrical engineer. He'd been a ship's engineer. They decided to get off in Brisbane and start a new life. He met my mother in New Farm, actually. So his first flat was in New Farm. It's a very romantic story, which is actually in Boy Lost. But I can, um, I can tell you about it again. My mother was working at an aged care home in New Farm and had to come around to the block of flats that he was living in to deliver a message to a co-worker. Uh, the co-worker had gone out, but my mother didn't know that and decided to sit down and, and see if she came. My father was working in a little workshop at the back. Still had a very heavy Swedish accent, as he did all his life, I have to say. Uh, he heard his phone ring from the back from the workshop, came and had to walk past her up the steps to go to his telephone, came back down and said hello to her and asked her why she was doing that. And she said she was waiting for Olga. He said, well, I saw Olga go out. I don't think she's coming back. My mother was very haughty and said, well, I'm going to wait anyway. She waited anyway. Uh, Olga didn't come and my mother went home. But a couple of weeks later, she met him again, missed her tram home and he offered to give her a ride. Again, very haughtily. She wasn't sure about doing that, but she, she went along. So that was how they met. And I think in that half-hour ride back to where she lived at Cannon Hill, they, they discovered some real affinities with each other, the most important of which, of course, was that they both had a missing child or both had lost a child. And I think as their relationship developed, it was that thing that they recognised something in each other and could finally, when they were able to trust a member of the opposite sex, realised that they could trust each other because they'd both lost as much as the other. Mm. Lovely story. 
It is, it is lovely story. <clears throat> and I don't think I quite sort of understood that about the nature of your mother and your father. Uh, I mean, because out of, one of the kind of most significant things that comes out of Boy Lost for me, and we're kind of jumping ahead here, but no, it doesn't matter, I guess, no. um, is that uh, it, it was never mentioned. The, the, the existence of your brother was never, ever mentioned. You didn't know about it. No. But your father knew, your fa your father knew about yes. the loss of, of Peter. Yeah? Yes. Because when they decided to marry, and they both knew that there was a, a missing child, that my father had also lost a son in Sweden. When they decided to marry, they sat down and had an extraordinary conversation. And I think it was typical of the era, perhaps. This is the 50s. They decided to tell each other everything, to turn it all out into the air, if you like, to tell each other all their secrets, knowing that they could trust each other, and then to close it off and nothing would be spoken about again. Because they were going into a future, a brand spanking new future together, and they didn't want the past to leak into the future. It was those days when we did that. There was no such thing as you know talking about it to a lot of people. The secrets remained secrets. So I was the first child of that marriage. My mother also had a daughter from that previous marriage. So I grew up thinking my older sister, of course, was just who she was and who she still is, my sister. We don't talk about half-siblings in my family. I had no idea that there was a missing child on either side until, until they both individually turned up. My father's son turned up. Very embarrassingly, I was 14 and promptly fell in love with him because he was a very Viking-looking <laughs> sailor. And uh, I think that's when they thought they should tell me about him. <laughs> <laughs> um, but with Peter it wasn't until I was older and had children of my own and Peter found my mother and knocked on the door so then we all hurriedly found out about him mm. interestingly though in, in, you know the, the, the day that Peter turned up and this is in Boy Lost um, he knocked on my mother's door and we found out because she called us all and individually said to us all can you come over there's someone I'd like you to meet and each of us, after the event, said to each other, we knew who it was. I got really interested then about the things you know without knowing that you know. There was something clearly that, we'd, that had lodged in us yeah. about this child that we all felt, of course, that's who it is. It's Peter. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So, look, going back to where we were, just to go, I don't want to stick on that thread about no. New Farm for just a moment, if that's all right, because yeah. you growing up there... Um, I mean, when you, what was it like going to school there in, in, in those years? Uh, it was very mixed. I went to New Farm State School. It was a, a suburb then of Italians and Greeks mostly. So my best friends were Italian and Greek. Uh, I loved it. I, I, I had, we had a lovely time. We had this most extraordinary backyard. The, the house that we lived in, I have to tell you, was very interesting. Was a, a big, there was a big shop front uh, where people in those days would bring their jugs and toasters to be fixed in a way that now we just go and buy new ones. Because my, my father was an electrical engineer and he did very interesting other work, but he also did this very small repair work. So all these toasters and jugs and batteries and things would be piled in the front of the shop. And then there was a set of flats that my parents had lived in. My parents had lived in one of them before they bought the actual house. So these little flats that my mother looked after in those days, that she would have looked, you know, done all the linen, etc. Uh, and then there's odd-shaped house, which explains to me why I am I'm attracted to odd-shaped houses now. I can't bear anything that's just straightforward. It's got to have funny things that go nowhere and 
doors that go nowhere and steps that go up but don't come down, things like that. Um, and this amazing backyard that was full of Queensland foliage. We, we lived particularly in a mango tree and under the mango tree and there was mulberry and banana and macadamia and locust. I found a locust tree the other day and had to pull some, stole some off it. It was hanging over the footpath. It was kind of... <laughs> Because my sisters come we up. We won't tell it. So no, it's good. Yes, my sisters come up from Adelaide, and I had to yes present them to her and say, "Look, locusts," because you don't see them much anymore. Yeah. But it, no, it was a marvelous place to grow up, and we all wandered the streets, even though we were very protected children. Our mother held on to us very tightly. Even she could let us roam around the streets of New Farm because it felt safe. So we did. We went to friends' houses blocks and blocks away, and went to New Farm Park and got the ferry across to Norman Park. She probably worried terribly about that. But it did feel, looking back, like a free-roaming yeah. childhood, unlike the ones my grandchildren have now. No, it, it's changed dramatically. Very much. It has yeah. changed dramatically. It's not, not for the better, really, in many ways. No. So you went to university. Was that, uh, was that unexpected in a family like yours? I mean, do you... No, it wasn't unexpected. Both of my parents were absolutely determined that we would have whatever education we wanted. And I think there was an expectation for me because I, I'd always been a writer from the time I was very small and interested in, um, in learning that I would go to university. So I think they would have been very distressed if I hadn't gone. But I, I was the first person, especially in my mother's family, to go to university. Not in my father's. My, in, my, in Sweden, uh, he'd had a... Uh, you know, uh, a university education wasn't strange to him. But I know when I, I, I had a very early marriage and one of the things my father said to my would-be husband was, you're not marrying this girl unless she finishes university. So he wasn't going to have me go off and, you know, and waste it. Yeah, just be a housewife. He wanted you mm. to finish, finish mm. it, yeah. Mm. And what you were studying, of course, was journalism which presumably there weren't that many women studying journalism at No, UQ in, in fact, there were hardly any courses. What year are we talking about? Uh, nine, this, I mean, will polite, a, this will give it away. It's 19, not a polite question, I know. but uh, No, no, it's, it's 1973. Hmm, yeah. I think the UQ course was one of only a couple in Australia then. And no, there weren't that many women, and certainly there weren't many women in the newsroom I mean, look, I asked the question because the main character in Shell, of course, Pearl Keogh, is yes. a, a journalist who, as the novel opens, we discover that she's been relegated to the women's pages because yes. she has been too political. Yes. And so she's actually quite a good journalist, yes. investigative journalist. But yes. she, in fact, you tell a story yourself about this, about being, about being a journalist in... Mm. Well, these were the days, A, when you weren't allowed to in any way reveal aside, you had to be straight down the middle journalist. You could not reveal that you had a feeling about a story. Uh, but yes, as a woman in those newsrooms, uh, um, and I had children at this stage, a couple of little children at home, and because I was one of the few women, I made sure that I took all the shifts that everyone else had. I took all the late shifts, I took all the early shifts, just so that everyone knew that I was out there doing exactly what the blokes were doing. And one night I was doing a late shift in... Um, in the newsroom on a Sunday night. I can tell you it was the Courier-Mail. You won't be surprised. And uh, one of the coups, I think it was Fiji, the first one blew up, and they cast their eyes around the newsroom to find someone to send. They wanted to send someone that night. And I was the only graded journo 
in the newsroom with a valid passport at the time, and they sent the sports reporter. And actually, the next morning, because by this stage I'd found my voice, I went into the editor's office and said, why? And I said, only, you know, it's my passport. He said, Chris, you know, you've got children. What if they'd been orphaned on that trip? I said, well, what about the blokes? What if they'd lost their, you know, their children had lost their father? What's the difference? He just sort of just did the equivalent of patting me on the head and sent me away. Very stroppy. It doesn't surprise me for the Courier Mail. No, <laughs> no, no. I'm say, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, no, I'll, I'll just, no. I'll shut I suspect okay. a lot of things haven't changed. <clears throat> so, at some point, though, you decided uh, to move from journalism into writing fiction. Yes, and one of those things for me was about not being able to take a side on an issue. There began for me to be subjects in which I found it very hard not to, you know, found it very hard to write a straight story about children in detention, uh, racism, very blatant racism of Brisbane in those days. I, I just couldn't write a straight story about it anymore. I felt I was just skimming the surface of those stories and not being able to actually write the real story. So I eased my way out and began to write. It's a very long apprenticeship. <laughs> I'm going to interrupt you there just for a second because it kind of occurs to me that you're a journalist in the Joe Bridgelka Peterson era. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there is all this corruption going on that presumably everybody knew about? Everybody? I, well, like, it wasn't a straight, obvious kind of knowledge, I suppose. There was, a, a, I guess, a bit of an acceptance that it was a very hard nut to crack. There were lots of people working on cracking it. But, it, as you know, it took a long time for Phil Dickey to actually get the information yeah, and, um, and for the ABC to get the information. Everyone was trying. But it was so blatant, you know, you'd ring Joe's office and he'd come on the phone and you'd ask him a question and he'd say, oh, I'm not going to, um, well, you're just, yeah, you're just one of them mm, and you're just, mm, you're just, I don't believe you and he'd hang up. It was, <laughs> it was incredibly hard to talk to the man. It was just, it was a very difficult, I mean, it, it took Phil, I think, um, dedicated time. He wasn't doing any other kind of stuff. He was just trying to crack that nut, and he finally did. It was very, it was very hard. Mm. So, sorry, go back with where you were there before oh, yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah. So. Oh, so, yes. So, I guess that's where one of, the parts, one of the places where my interest in objectivity, subjectivity came from, that I could no longer be objective on lots of subjects. But on the other hand, I'd come from a family in which half of it, you know, was Scandinavian and where, you know, Scandinavia, Sweden certainly had been neutral, politically neutral in the past couple of wars. I'd always been, as a young person, pretty chuffed about that, that I'd come from that bloodline where people didn't take part in armed conflict. thought it was pretty cool. But it wasn't until I really started to look at that as a notion and realised how contested it was, that it was much deeper and much more complex than just not going to war. So I really began to think about what it is to take a side or not take a side. I mean, I'd also been in newsrooms and at parties where a subject would come up where you were a little bit flummoxed. You kind of felt a certain way but didn't feel like you could say so. 
And I'd felt like a coward a couple of times in conversations like that where I thought, why didn't you say something, Chris? Why didn't you actually stand up? So, so there was all that in my head and I wanted to really look at what happens when you don't take a side and what happens when you do. So that fed into the characters of Axel and Pearl. Yes, and yeah. certainly into Pearl, of course, as a, as a journalist in, you know, in an era just a little before mine. Mm. Yes. So the Opera House seemed like... A, a pretty interesting canvas for that, especially in the 60s when, you know, you have a man like Jorn Utzon who's bringing this particular flavour uh, and these particularly wild talents to something like the Opera House. And yet at the other end of the street we have politicians deciding to send 20-year-olds to war without their permission. What kind of a place did that make us? I wanted to know. What, who were we? What were we? when we could do both those things in terms of taking a side and not taking a side. Yeah. So that kind of began where I started questioning. For me, it's always about a question. I never write a book because I know anything. Quite no, the opposite. Of, of course Because I don't not. know something. Yeah. Now, look, we seem to be kind of moving towards Shell already, like we're kind of in there. Why do, could you, would you mind reading us a section of it just, just as a kind of introduction to it and then we can kind of go from sure. there and, and, and talk about... Where okay. Genesis and things like that. Okay, I'm going to read you a little bit of Axel, who I must say I'm a little in love with myself still. Pearl was much harder for me to write, so, but Axel seemed to um, come a little more easily. <clears throat> All night, the shush and beat of the road. Axel lay in his bed and thought that maybe the human heart was pneumatic, a fist of rubber, no more fragile than the tyres squeezing bitumen outside his window. But daylight unfurled him like a flag. He stretched his limbs beneath the sheet, spread his palms across his chest, the beat there relentless. Kaboom, kaboom. He rose early and walked a circular quay where he could sit with coffee and thick toast and watch birds wheel above the ferries. The water grey at that hour and splintered with memory, shifting in currents, dangerous. There were unguarded moments when he felt it in his body, the pull of dark water, of immersion of nothing but a liquid embrace, a return back, back. He would emerge from these moments weightless, lift his eyes, searching. A leaf would do, fine-veined, the press of air on his face or his hand on sandstone. Once in the gardens, a ladybird, its miniature perfection, the tremble of the leaf beneath it brought him back to the world, his surviving self. He had arrived in Sydney as summer was tipping over. Even then, everything he saw or touched felt warm. Each place, each sweep of landscape or seascape was mediated by heat and light and his body moving through it. In that way, he thought he saw with his skin, felt his way with his paws, open or closed to the elements and this light. He had lived in the dark for months of every year, among shapes hunched in snow, made new by it and strange. This, Axel knew, had made him different. He thought of these people whose lives clustered around the harbour, their houses with open windows and doors and balconies, everything flung wide, so they took great gulps of the world. The new opera house, even half-finished, expressed them perfectly, sails hoisted in currents of summer air. When he left Sweden, winter was conceding slowly to spring, the horizon, a frail line of possibility once more in the early mornings. It was a fine string that tautened his dreams. He would stand at the window, 
not knowing if he was awake or asleep. Outside the world was more than it could be, bigger than the day to come and the night just gone, brimming. But he'd always loved autumn most, those days before the rain came and everything was drawn in crisp outline, slate on a roof, fronds on a pine tree, a woman's eyelashes, the detail of things, before the obliteration of snow. His body felt like a child's then, unafraid. Limbs loose, feet and fingers prickling with questions. He took long runs through forest and field, climbed trees before their leaves fell, high enough to see the village toy-like, miniature. Figures moved around as if they were singular, not part of this big pattern. He would feel a shiver of pleasure watching. I'll stop there, I think. I'll go on. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I mean, there are so many ways to approach this novel. It, it, I've got sort of a list of kind of some of them here. They've got the, the, the family, you've got politics, Vietnam War, but also a, a kind of way of salvaging place, which is a kind of a great thing to be able to say about a novel, that there are so many aspects of it. But um, how did you get into writing about it in the first place? Where did, where did your... About did the Opera House or about Sydney? Oh, well, about just everything. Oh, everything. Wow, okay. So some of those preoccupations I mentioned earlier, I suppose. I certainly never intended to write about the Opera House. Certainly uh, it wasn't in, on my radar particularly until uh, one of my Norwegian nieces came to stay six or seven years ago to Brisbane, but she didn't want to go home until she'd seen the Opera House. So she was here with her husband and children. So we flew, her family and me, to Sydney and... They, she had twins, they were about eight at the time, and they crawled all over the opera house in a way, and I was joined them in a way that I had never done before. And I realised as I watched them do it that the building wasn't strange to them at all. You know, it's still strange to lots of people, the opera house, but to them, they understood it immediately, instantly. They were seeing it, I realised, through Scandinavian eyes. And so that we got the ferry then across to Manly, and as as the ferry left and the opera house receded, I realised that I was doing it as well. I was seeing it through their eyes and I was seeing it completely differently. So that really was the beginning. And as well as looking at the, at the opera house then, I looked around me at the harbour and at the people and the buildings, starting to see them through this lens. So that was, that was a, big, a big part of it. I really could see that you know, my, my Scandinavian bloodline and my Australian bloodline were merging in this building. Yeah. And I wanted to have a look at what that meant. They're very different countries with very different attitudes, and I wanted to see how they would play out. Yeah. But, I mean, it's interesting you say that about strange, because, I mean, every time I see the Sydney Opera House, I am just... I, it doesn't matter how many times I've ever seen it, because I lived in Sydney for years, I, I, but every time I visited, I'm just taken aback, because it is so strange. It is just so out of this world. It does... It, 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 I mean, it's so much... It has, I mean, one of the lovely things about your novel here is the way, some of the ways that you describe it. And, and at the time that the novel is taking place, it's just the shells. They're not, they're, they're not tiled at that point. No. So there's just the kind of great arches. And that is kind of evocative in that kind of Grace Cossington Smith Harbour Bridge yes, kind of way. That, that is all kind of there. Yeah. But it's also that it, 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 it belongs in its place, but it's utterly unlike anything else that Australia has produced. In fact, utterly unlike 
any other, I mean, until the Guggenheim Bilbao or something comes along, there's nothing to compare it to, really. Mm. And many of us weren't ready for it, I think. It was, uh, everything about it was strange and I think a huge confrontation to many people, those shapes. And, you know, in the media it was, of course, some people here might be old enough to remember how it was described in the media a lot as um, a collapsed circus tent or nuns in a scrum. Um, Barry Humphreys famously, famously wore a, an opera, share, opera house shaped hat to the, to the races and someone had a, um, a tea towel with a dish rack that looked exactly, you know, plates and a dish rack looked exactly like the opera house. So people were belittling it and I, thought, I think one of the, you know, it was, uh, we were a country then and in some ways we still are a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of art. And there were people who were saying, well, this is a waste of money, you know, um, why, are we, why are we spending money on something like this? And it's not even Australian building it. It's someone else, this foreign person. I think it, you know, it just stuck a pin in um, the skin of a lot of people because it was so different. They would have preferred a nice square, a nice block that didn't confront them. But I think part of it too was that a lot of people to see the absolute beauty of it very early on. And we're still not a country completely happy with beauty. And the things that it was making people feel, as it makes us all feel, I'm not sure if you guys have this feeling when you look at the Opera House, it's moving, you feel your heart shift. And I think that was confronting to a lot of Australians, that they were push, busy pushing that feeling down in themselves. And so they pushed the Opera House down as well. They, didn't, they couldn't confront that idea of beauty or the idea of art as such a thing. We were busy about to send boys to Vietnam and a lot of their fathers were saying, off you go, I went, you should go too. We were that kind of place. A bit uncomfortable with the idea of this leery, extraordinary shape going up on Benelong Point. Yeah. I mean, somewhere in one of your pieces, I don't know where it is, but there's something you've got about, uh, oh, no, here it is, you used a metaphor of shards of glass in the psyche, which I thought was a very... Uh, was that in an article in the... Uh, an interview in The Guardian you were talking about? Yeah. It. Well, I, I, um, I did a great deal of research for this book, of course, and but not all of it was entirely about architecture, although some of it was. And I, I, I heard an amazing interview between a couple of um, people in, uh, in the UK about... This is going to sound like... It's nothing to do with this book, but it absolutely is central to it. Um, about the, the Princess of Bavaria, Alexandra, I think her name was, in the 19th century, who was found walking down a hallway in her castle um, like this, not wanting to touch the sides of the walls. And then she would she made, made sure her bed was in the centre of the room. And it turned out that she had this psych glass psychosis. She believed she'd swallowed a glass grand piano. Apparently there was such psychosis around at the time and apparently there were lots of men who had this glass psychosis and it was seated in their bottoms. They felt they couldn't sit down or their bums would break. I can't speak for them, but I can, talk, I can tell you what I took from the, from the interview and the extrapolations from it was that part of this was about what she was afraid of in herself and, and, and that if she, if she touched the edge of the wall or if she fell out of bed that this glass panel would break and that she would break inside. And it, because I had a glassmaker making a piece of glass for the opera house, it occurred to me that this shard of glass we all carry around inside ourselves um, and we're not tender towards it, we're very afraid of it and that if it breaks, we might break as well. And it felt to me that there was Jorn Utzon making this site sacred with this building 
But of course, it was already a sacred site to Aboriginal people and had been, for eons, we'd been busy since 1770, completely, completely decimating the Aboriginal population. And I kind of feel like that's what we carry. That's our shard of glass. Some of the book is about shame, and Pearl carries some of that storyline. And I feel like our national shame is our shade of shard of glass that we turn away from because we can't quite face those sorts of things either. Mm. <laughs> Thank you. And, 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 and shame is such a, a destructive emotion, it really is, because it, it, it's kind of self-defeating in, in its same mm. way in that you feel shame for something you've done, but you can't then be excused of that shame because yes. you're not worth because you're now shamed. You're not worthy of being forgiven for and it. it so you, kind of, you. You, you, you you injure yourself with with your own shame. I think it hardens you and it makes you angry. And as we can see with our own treatment of Aboriginal people, um, what you do is you start blaming the victim uh, for the situation they're in. Yeah, I, th I suspect that's you know, what we've done, and I think our national shame and Pearl's own personal sense of shame about her brothers is is representative of that, if you like. Yeah, so, I mean, for the audience here, Pearl has two brothers, and this is a kind of lead motive through a lot of your, yes, ri your writing. I mean, it, yeah. Boy Lost is the, is the kind of archetypical straight-on approach to your missing brother and that yes. kind of hole that was in your life yes. that... that you didn't even know was there, but you knew it was there at the same time. Yeah. But it's there in the China Garden. It's in Boy Lost, and it, it resurged. It's resurgent again that she has lost her brothers. Yeah. Yes. Pearl has. Uh, Pearl's mother has died when she was fourteen, and she's looked after them for some time. But then, as they did in those days, and still do, the welfare had come along and taken them away. Her sense of shame is based in the fact that she has then found journalism and found it a, an almost erotic experience, that newsroom is this extraordinary place that she loves. And so she hasn't seen the boys and she's lost track of them. And now conscription has come in and one of them is of conscriptable age and the other one will be the year after. So I have a preoccupation with this whole thing as well. And part of that stems from my mother, actually, who... Uh, we didn't know, of course, but she did when Vietnam happened, that she had a son of conscriptable age. We had no idea, and she had no idea where he was. But I can remember conversations, for instance, uh, cleaning bookshelves with my then eight-year-old son and my mother. You know, in Queensland, how you get the sticky wasp stuff in the spines of books, and we'd clean them once a year. And one year, we were all doing this, and you know, repetitive tasks, you get to talk and say things that you may not otherwise. And that, uh, somehow Vietnam had come up and she looked at my little eight-year-old son, this very gentle boy, still is, and said to him, you know, if there's ever another war like that, you won't be going. I'll hide you in an attic somewhere or I'll shoot off one of your toes. And, and he kind of went, and then looked at her and of course she just looked at him with those loving eyes and he realised, you know, it was, a, it was a gesture of love, it wasn't a gesture of violence. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember, and, you know, because she seemed to be, you know, she talked about conscription quite a lot, I have no idea why. So it wasn't until Peter knocked on the door and we found out what his life had been like that we realised, of course, in all those years, that that's why she was preoccupied with it. She yeah. knew that he could be called up. Of course, he had had polio, so he... He yeah. would never have been gone. But he did get called up, actually. So all her worst fears would have been realised. 
if he hadn't got one gammy leg. I mean, one of the things that I found most profound about Boy Lost was towards the end of the book, just kind of when you're almost in the conclusion or the summing up of the book, you talk about the, the fact that, if, if I can just praise for a second, what, what we find out in the book, yeah. I don't think giving anything away here, is that, that um, Peter was ripped out of his mother's arms on a train in Townsville Station. Cairns. Yeah? Cairns. Cairns, sorry, Cairns, Cairns, in, in the station in Cairns. And um, nobody intervened, right? It, it, just, it just happened. This man came on and uh, to the train and, and ripped this child out of the mother's arms and took the child away screaming while the mother was screaming, presumably, and nobody, nobody blinked an eyelid. And you talk about this as, as the euphemism of childhood, as it were. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I mean, if you'd like to talk to that, because I think what you say there is really profound. The bull, and certainly Shell is, is said in an era when this was still happening, I couldn't figure out why no one helped my mother and why in the following years that no one helped Peter, who was being abused also by his father and was in and out of child detention. Why did, you know, there were so many times at which an intervention was possible, but no one helped either of them. And then while I was trying to figure this out, in one year, in one of the years of the writing, there were four apologies in the National Parliament one was to the children of forced adoptions, one was to the forgotten Australians, one was to the stolen generation, and one was to the child migrants who'd been plucked out of homes in Britain and Malta and brought forcibly to Australia and, and then plonked in terrible, isolated places where they were abused. And I listened to those apologies and they felt very personal to me, of course. But I listened to them and thought, no wonder no one helped my mother or Peter. That's the kind of country we were then. We had this amnesia, and still do, around motherhood, around maternity, and around childhood, and around our right to pluck children out of homes. I mean, the, the, the kids being taken to the welfare in the time Pearl and Axel are in this book uh, might have just missed out on breakfast and gone to the school without shoes a few times, and they might have had not a good reputation in the street and off they'd be taken to homes. I know lots of people like this. So that was the kind of place we were in the 50s. Um, every second person was losing a child. No wonder no one helped my mother or Peter. It was just not done. Everyone was losing. And we all just conveniently forgot about it. It was, a, it was shocking, and still is. We're still taking Aboriginal kids off their parents in vast numbers. Uh, I suspect the children of the poor aren't getting much better treatment. Mm. Certainly when you have a look at the courts and, and juvenile detention centres, which are full, as we know, of kids who shouldn't be there. Don't get me started. <laughs> so, you're, I mean, this story in the, in, the, in the novel, you've kind of given a lot of this to Pearl, haven't you? Yeah. In, in, and Poor Pearl. Poor Pearl. It's a lot for her to carry. Yeah, well, it is a lot for her to carry because she's carrying, she's carrying her own life and her love of journalism and what she's doing, but she's also carrying this sense that, that somehow, having been forced to become her brother's mother yeah. at yeah. too early an age, yeah. she has then abandoned them herself, yeah? Yes. Well, you know, that was a joke about being too much. I think uh, women still do this. Uh, it certainly wasn't, it was no different to many women's lives in the 50s and 60s and still isn't much different to women's lives now. That uh, a huge amount is expected 
in terms of what we do and how we live our lives, mostly because we're the ones who bear the children and therefore the guilt of, you know, having a life as well. So I think Pearl was representative of her time and I'm hoping, um, or n I'm not hoping, I'm suspecting that it still is, she still is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think she's... Uh, I don't think she's... I think she's typical of, of many women at the time, especially from her background. Yeah. And the character of Axel, that's kind of... Put Pearl aside just for a second. Okay. And, 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 and just Axel, because he's a glassmaker, yeah? Yes. yes. And, I mean, you've obviously done a lot of study of glassmaking at some point. I mean, have you, have you ever done glassmaking? You no, know? I haven't ever done any glassmaking, but my, my father comes from a part of Sweden that's very close to the glass. There's a glass province in Sweden where most of the glass houses are. So whenever I've been, and from the time I was small, when we went there, we would go, of course, to the glass places. My mother loved glass, so we'd always come back with bits of oracles or Costa Buda stuff in our bags. And... Uh, and, and in those days, you could just watch glass blowing in the in the houses, in the glass houses. So I'd always, I'd always been fascinated by it, and always, as a writer, fascinated by its metaphorical potential, of course. Yeah, um, I mean, with that's this is your shard of glass, and then you've yeah. got this glassmaker yeah. in, in the in the opera house. Yes. What is he actually making? Well, I can't give that away, really. <laughs> um, but he's making. He's well. He's he's been commissioned to make a piece of art glass for yeah. the foyer of the opera house. And was that was that actual was that no, a thing? No. This is just this is a fiction, is it? Yes. Okay. I wondered if there was actually a thing here. That's no, a... I get I get asked that a little bit, but no, there wasn't a glassmaker. Um, it's a novel, so I get to make things up, which yeah. is nice. <laughs> um, but uh, glass it just seemed, you know. I, the glass walls of the opera house were full of potential as well, but I really wanted this art, you know, this, you know, he had to be an artist. What was the question again? I've got right off track. No, I just, I was asking about, about Axel, about, about, what, he, what, he was, about, about what he was making and... and yes, and all the shape he was making. Well, he doesn't know what he's going to make when he first gets there, and that's part of the story, that he's getting to know the country, and he wants it to reflect what this place is. And, of course, he's finding it to be quite complex. It's very different to Sweden. Yeah. It's very different from everything he knows. And the people are very different and the attitudes are very different. And he's obsessed with Utzen. He, he sees him as heroic and he sees the treatment that he's getting. And so Axel comes with his own, of course, his own um, baggage and that's always, that was always going to influence the shape that he made because he's got his own, yeah, his own wounds, as we all do. Axel's got some deep ones, so... That was always going to feed into what he made, apart as well as what he observes around him in Australia. Yeah, I mean, it, you do talk about that um, in the in the book, uh, uh, describing Axel about how the production of art is always kind of revealing of the artist. Absolutely. Which, which I confess, I thought was a bit of a kind of long bow because it felt to me like you were talking about a writer, you know, because whatever, whenever you write, you can't. I mean, what, it doesn't matter what fiction you write. You know, sooner or later, it reveals yourself. It does. I wasn't quite sure that that. And a, a glassmaker, it was quite so revealing of the personality itself, but you can argue the point. I there. will argue it. I think definitely with visual art, and all kinds of visual art, that, uh, you know, if, if, you do, if you do a nude, the way you do the nude, of course, is all about you. It's not about the nude in front of you. No. It's, it's how you see it and whether you feel, um, whether you, how you feel about that body and whether you find it beautiful or whether you 
whether you find it shapely or whether you find it ugly, that's all going to be there in the way you draw that body. I think the person who's nude in front of you, naked in front of you, is, is not nearly as exposed as you are as you do the drawing because all your prejudices, everything is going to be on that page. Yeah. And that's certainly the same with writing. And I, I think it must be with music, and I'm not a musician, I know very little about music, unfortunately, but I suspect it's the same. You can have a music score, but it's the, it's the, in, the in the playing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a long bow to draw, so to speak, but I think it's... Um, <laughs> I suspect and, it's And true. being Swedish, he is, and it being kind of post, still reasonably soon post-war, yes. he's getting quite a lot of flack about about being neutral. Yeah, which is especially on the Opera House site, where people still have memories of, of course, of the war. It's not that long after. And Sweden still, not so much now, but still gets a hard time about their role in... In the, in the Second World War. Uh, I've just had a friend come back from travelling in Norway and she said, it's still there. They're still pretty bitter and twisted about Sweden. I'd always felt like Norway and Sweden, it was a bit like Australia and New Zealand, you know, this kind of friendly rivalry goes a lot deeper in yeah. Scandinavia. Yeah, they really feel Sweden failed them. And because, well, all the Scandinavian, all the Scandinavian countries were were neutral to start with in the war. Yes. They all had declared their neutrality. But, of course, Norway and Denmark were always going to be occupied because of their seafronts. Sweden is, is landlocked except for their southern shore. So Norway had that western, that western coast that they, the Germans wanted. Denmark was right there attached to the rest of Europe. And so they very quickly fell to the Germans. Uh, the, the Germans couldn't really afford to upset Sweden too much. They wanted their iron ore, which the Swedes proceeded to provide. So that was always a bit shocking. And they, the Norwegians still don't forgive Sweden for letting the Germans in right over the north of Sweden and into Norway at one stage. So I've, I found all this out in the research and felt shocked by it, of course. I mean, Sweden did contribute in many ways, especially to bringing Jewish people out of, out of Germany and also bringing Danish Jews to Sweden. In fact, Jorn Utzen was involved in a thing called the Danish Brigade, which smuggled Danish Jews out of Denmark and into southern Sweden and, and, um, and protected them. Mm. But I found um, this country that I loved, um, yeah, a bit wanting, really, in many ways. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 we all have this view, well, not, not, but lots of us in the West have this view of Scandinavia as this ideal state, this kind of utopian area, you know, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, mm. Finland to a certain extent. Mm. Yeah, well, Finland because of education. Yeah. But there are these kind of really quite dark forces operating underneath there are. the surface. There are, and, and in Sweden, um, it's, very, it's very difficult for me to talk about this, but it's, I remember the, um, who, who was the man who wrote the Millennium Trilogy, the... Um, you know, the, um, what am I trying to say? Yes, Stig Larsson, thank you. His widow came to a Brisbane Writers' Festival after he died and w was talking about, you know, the, the undercurrent of darkness in Sweden. And she, and she suggested, I hadn't heard this before, but of course it, it must be true, I think, that um, because of Sweden's open borders, a lot of the Nazis escaped after the end of the war into Sweden and went underground. And so it sort of bubbles up uh, a little even now. I mean, my father's hometown is Malmö in the south, and it's now you know, a hive of gang warfare a great deal. I went to one of my favourite coffee shops a couple of years ago with friends, and they said, 
that was where the drive-by shooting was last week, and that's where that happened. It's, it's, it's yeah, it can be quite alarming. But my, yeah, the rest of my family comes from the, from the um, the provinces where it's fairly quiet. But yeah, it's it's a bit shocking to have to see that clearly. Yeah. yeah. So, what 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 are you doing now, Christelle? Where where are you going I'm now? I'm talking a lot about Shell, um, but I'm I'm going back to non-fiction. You know, my writing seems to flip-flop between fiction, non-fiction, fiction, non-fiction, without any permission from me, I have to say. It just arrives. Now I'm writing a book that's loosely titled Museum uh, that is that follows a little bit on from Boy Lost and a feeling they had about that place I grew up in, a new farm, that backyard in particular. Because I was think one of the things I was, you know, thinking about was that... We had a lot of sadness around us as children, and we didn't know what the sadness was. I think we thought it was something deficient in ourselves. But we we had the most wonderful time in that backyard, and even now, as adults, whenever we're in the same room, we sit around and talk about our childhood in that backyard. It's this glowing golden picture. So I started to wonder about the traces that must have been left in that place. There must have been something good. I felt that happened on that ground. So I started to get interested in the geology of places and what lies underneath. I realised, of course, that that wonderful rock called Brisbane Tuff that makes up the Kangaroo Point Cliffs, you'll know that beautiful golden red rock, runs under New Farm, comes from a volcanic explosion 226 million years ago, 80 metres underneath. So I started to look at this. Then my son, who's now a man, moved to Christchurch with his family. He married a Kiwi girl after the earthquakes. And I started to think about this and think, hmm, I grew up on ground that I must have known was solid. Barefoot child, I must have felt that in my body. I must have known there was this rock. And my grandchildren are going to grow up on soil that could erupt beneath them at any time. Will their dreams be more precarious than mine? Will they be anxious about the world in a way I'm not? Not because literally they're thinking about the but just the way soil and what happens on soil can get into your blood. And then there was this amazing story I'd read in the, uh, in the, in the Times about the torso of a little boy being found in the Thames. Um, there were no identifying bits of him left to be able to find out who he was. It was only a torso, so no teeth. Um, and they, the scientists were able to find out not just who he was, not just that he'd come from Africa or a particular part of Africa, but the very village he'd come from by analysing the minerals in his bones. I thought, there you go. Because, you know, it's what he ate. It was what the food he ate in that village. Well, there you go. Where you grow, the land you grow on makes you. So I decided I wanted to dig right back down, back to that volcanic explosion, and then come back up bit by bit to see how the geology made the landscape and then how the landscape makes us. And then to also look at not just what's there, but what's not there, what we've erased. We've erased, you know, all the absences. We've erased Aboriginal culture and memory, for one thing. You look at a map, where's the Aboriginal in New Farm now? Where's the traces of those people? And, and the natural world, all the big chunks of the natural world we as a species have destroyed. So all those are absences in the landscape now. So I wanted to, I'm trying to work out who I am and who we are maybe contingent upon that that whole idea of what's beneath our feet and how that affects how that comes up through our bodies, I guess. Be complicated. 
No, but absolutely fascinating. I'm, I'm, as a writer, I'm just going, how, how, do you, how do you begin? You know, where, where do you start? Oh, it's well, <laughs> indeed. Well, I, I've begun... Well, it's, there's memoir in this as well. I really wanted to bring my father's story into this because he chose this place. He chose this place that I grew on. Um, and I feel like he chose it for us. And uh, so I wanted to go back to why he did that. What were the shapes in that landscape? that decided him that it would be there, that he would stay and build a family. So there's bits of his story that have never been told that I find fascinating. So there's bits of that and bits of my own story, of course. And, and, just, and, and even geology, which sounds like such a dry subject, is actually completely fascinating in, once you actually dig into it, so to speak. I'm just reading a book at the moment that's called Timefulness, by an American ge geologist who is just extraordinary and talks about geology in a way that makes it completely new to me. But, you know, it's about homelands. You know, what do we owe to the places where we grew? What do we owe to the homelands um, where we grew our veggies and met our partners and lit our fires and built our libraries? What, what do we owe to the places where our feet fell first and where yeah. we first breathed? I'm fascinated by it. I hope other people will be too. I'm sure, I'm sure that will. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm wondering whether we ought to take some questions. Thank you for that. That's lovely. I've Thank actually you. sung in the Opera House. I have to say that because when I did it, my, I was eight. My father said, you'll tell people about this one day. And I said, I'm never going to tell anybody. There I am. <laughs> uh, but it's really interesting, your concept of place and your discussion of place. I wonder if you could comment on the fact that we call, you know, the Harbour Bridge the coat hanger and we've got the toaster. And, we've, you know, we, we sort of like to colloquialise these forms that we put onto Indigenous land, yep. as you say, without recognising what lies beneath. Yep. And, but I, I also feel that the Opera House is, you know, look at the events of this week with the advertising going on the sales, mm. has become a very symbolic thing for Western culture in Australia. So not having read the book as yet, I'm sure you go into details on that, but just a quick comment on the toaster, the coat hanger, the sails. Yeah, the yeah. Well, I think it go, comes back to that thing about us being afraid of grandeur and the grandeur in ourselves as much as anything else. We like to give colloquial names to things and it makes us feel a bit better because, you know, we're not really that kind of people who can make grand statements or, you know, we haven't come through that way. I think there's no surprise, really, that people wanted racing information on the Opera House sales because, again, it just makes it this ordinary kind of building. It's just, as our Prime Minister said, it's a big billboard. You know, that's yet another name for the Opera House. It's just a big billboard. We can't actually sit there and say or stand there and say, we've got one of the most beautiful buildings in the world and we own this. This is who we are. We're afraid of saying that. We're much happier saying... We've got the wallabies, you know, we've got the fastest runner in the world, blah, blah, blah. We're really afraid of saying we've, we've produced this magnificent piece of art and that's who we are. And we have prime minister after prime minister after prime minister digging that attitude into us because they give all the money to sport and very little to art. It's just something we, ha as a nation, I don't think we've come to grips with. I'm, I'm not, of course, there are people who, who do, who, who can see it, but I think... Most, most people in Canberra have taken advantage of those who don't and got away with it, got away with denying that part of us. And we haven't quite been able to get enough people 
to deny that. You know, I think we're just still scared of art being art. Mm. Um, I grew up in Sydney and um, my favourite view of the world was uh, the triad of the Opera House and Luna Park and the Harbour Bridge, yeah. which it has had a great sort of absurdist drama that, and those three things you never would see in combination anywhere and so iconically Sydney. But one of the things that happened was that I fell out of love with Sydney in a very, very painful way when they started to obscure the views of the harbour and um, they, they so much built and ugly buildings that changed all the vistas that you had in Sydney, all the sight lines that you had in Sydney. And, I mean, it's a bit of a mythic image we have of Australian society as egalitarian, but my perception of Sydney it was during that period of the 80s where greed is good and that's, those images became the um, prerogative of the elite because more and more of the harbour was closed off. And I, I just wondered what your perspective of that was. Well, I agree with you completely, of course, and it's, it's Sydney's not alone in that, of course. Brisbane's done it as well. Um, we finally sort of became adult as a city, I think, when Harry Seidler, I think it was, designed the Riverside Centre facing the river. And until then, all our buildings had faced away from the river, because the river was this dirty little secret at the bottom of our backyards, and it was dirty. It was, you know, we'd polluted it so badly. Then finally an architect came along and faced a building towards the river, and we went, oh, we've got this river. It's gorgeous. And everyone started to build buildings along it. Um, but, you know, Brisbane now, of course, is a high-rise a high nest, of course, that you can, you can barely see through. And we've got very little... We seem to have very little control over that. I think... I'm hoping you might read the book, because someone said to me the other day that after that red shell... Well, before that red shell, they were so pissed with Circular Quay, they couldn't bear to go there anymore. It was just Ugg boot shops and millions of tourists and they couldn't see anything beyond it. But after they'd read the book, they'd seen it freshly again, which was a huge compliment to me. But I'm hoping perhaps there is a way of seeing the harbour still and, and that lovely vista that you talk about, um, being able to see through some of these places and to see what is there, as Aboriginal people must have to do all the time, that these, you know, these places that were theirs and were extraordinarily beautiful before we came along and even put up huts, which would have obscured their view of whatever they were looking at at the time. It just seems to roll on, doesn't it? But I think we've all got to come to our own ways of looking and seeing past some things and, and through some things, as well as still getting out there and protesting like crazy when they do something that desecrates a place like the racing adverts, Axel would say, that that, that would have desecrated the, the opera house as well. I, th I, I, think, I think David Maloof says that of all the arts, that architecture is the one that can change people's behaviour the most keenly. That you plonk a really beautiful, significant building down on a street corner and people will walk past it in a different way. They'll behave differently around that building. And I think he's right. And, and it's certainly exemplified in the Opera House that if you can get yourself past that, that awful bit of circular key now and just plonk yourself in front of the Opera House, you can still see it. And if you try hard, you can still see Benelong on that point, I reckon. And you can still see the dancing and the ceremony on Benelong Point. 
in, in, in a way that Aboriginal people have to try to see still. Yeah. And I think in Brisbane, interesting enough, the construction of Goma has completely, for me, transformed that whole, the whole city of Brisbane yeah. because there is now an iconic building in our in our state, yeah. and as you say, just one building can change the whole. Absolutely, shape of the place. it's yeah. now it now diverts it diverts your eye yeah. to a place of art, which is yeah. which is wonderful. Yeah. yeah, in the way that I guess we would have to look to the Story Bridge otherwise, and that's okay, but going is better. Yeah, <laughs> put your hands together, please, to Christina Olsen. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>